Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This is your host, Phil Ord. This is your co-host, DJ LeClear. Warning, this podcast may challenge your views on environmentalism and push back on conventional environmental thought with science and data. We hope you approach with humanism and an open mind. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, A-N-E, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. We are pleased to talk to Dr. Patrick Brown to discuss climate science and the political divide on the situation. Patrick is a PhD climate scientist and an assistant professor in the Department of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State University, where he teaches and conducts research on weather and climate and their interactions with society. He holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in atmospheric and oceanic sciences, a master's degree from the department he is now a faculty member, meteorology and climate science at San Jose State University, and a PhD from Duke University in Earth and Ocean Sciences. He has also conducted research at the Carnegie Institution at Stanford University, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, NASA Langley in Virginia, NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C., and NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory at Princeton University. Dr. Brown has published peer-reviewed papers in Nature, PNAS, Nature Climate Change, as well as many other journals, and his research has been highlighted in the Washington Post, Newsweek, The Huffington Post, and The Guardian, among other places. Man, this guy has an incredible list of accomplishments to his name. We struck gold here with such an expert willing to appear on our fledgling podcast. You can say that again. I can't wait to have a conversation with him to really brainstorm meaningful action on climate and emissions reduction in this crazy political time. More than anything, we need level-headed experts to inform the body politic and finally solve problems instead of fighting. Anyway, stay tuned and we will be back with Dr. Patrick Brown. Dr. Patrick Brown, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So let's get into some of the basics. Uh, What is climate change or global warming? And is climate change real? Well, uh, so global warming generally refers, as the name suggests, to the observation that the globe on average uh, has been warming up since the Industrial Revolution. And uh, so it's about one degree Celsius warmer than it was prior to the Industrial Revolution. And we can kind of convert that uh, locally to about three degrees Fahrenheit. So you can kind of think of it as like every single temperature that you're experiencing is about three degrees Fahrenheit warmer uh, 
than it would be otherwise. So today the high in, in San Jose is going to be about 83. And so we can imagine that if we hadn't been burning fossil fuels, it would have been about uh, 80 degrees as a high. And so then climate change is this other term that then kind of refers more to kind of the downstream impacts of that warming. So changes in precipitation, for example, or floods or droughts would be other parts of the climate that are changing basically in response to that change in uh, in global average temperature. And so we know that it's real um, from a lot more than just measuring it with thermometers, but that's our main way of measuring it. So we have a network of weather stations all over the, the surface of the, of the planet that have uh, gradually matured and become more comprehensive uh, as time has gone on. But those those date back to the basically the 1800s, late 1800s. We have a record of, of global average temperature from thermometers. But we can also see this warming from um, measurements from weather balloons, from satellites that have been measuring this since uh, 1979, from other observations in the Earth's system, like changes in the cryosphere or ice. So uh, reductions in glacier length and volume, uh, changes in the ice sheets, so reduction in the mass of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, which are measured uh, by satellites. We actually have these cool uh, gravity satellites uh, called GRACE that have, have this uh, laser that bounces back back and forth between two satellites. And when one satellite goes over, uh, for example, the Greenland ice sheet, uh, it's tugged by the gravity of the Greenland ice sheet and it goes down a little bit and that laser can sense that gra gravitational pull in the satellite. And so those have been up since 2002. And we can actually see that the gravity from the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet is decreasing. So we're measuring uh, mass loss that way. Oh, and wow. so, we're, yeah, we're measuring it in, in all sorts of different ways. And so there's, there's a lot of evidence uh, that the Earth is getting warmer and it's basically it's it's unequivocal there's there's no way that all of these things could be pointing in the same direction without a strong persistent uh global warming got it um i was just gonna say uh you brought up a kind of you differentiated between the terms climate change and global warming i i didn't really know the difference either i kind of thought you know global warming caused climate change which you kind of alluded to but when people are like oh the scientists are sneaky. They changed the name. Are they wrong? Yeah, I mean, there is kind of a drift in terminology. Um, you know, one 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 of my pet peeves is when people say uh, that, like, does climate change cause this? And that doesn't really make sense because really it's what you're observing would be part of climate change. I mean, that itself would be climate change. So if it's like hurricanes are getting stronger, did climate change cause that? It's like, no. Uh, hurricanes getting stronger would be climate change. And so then a cause could be increasing greenhouse gas concentrations or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think there was any deliberate uh, change of the name. I actually personally like global warming because that really is the main mechanism. Increasing greenhouse gases warms the globe on average. Um, and even despite what you might hear about cold extremes, that's really not something that we're observing where, uh, you know, it's, you know, there's this notion that, oh, everything gets crazier. It's, you know, 
it gets hotter and colder and and whatever. But actually, when we look at the observations, it's the warming outweighs any type of mechanism that would cause uh, a cold extreme. And so it, it really is pretty global warming uh, that we're seeing. And so I, I do like that. And then uh, I like that as a descriptive term. And then, yeah, climate change would be additional things that might be changing within the climate, like precipitation that wouldn't be part of the global warming term. That makes sense. It's good to uh, let everyone know all the terminology here. Um, so uh, one last part of, uh, of this question. Uh, how do we know that climate change is not a Chinese hoax? <laughs> um, so I guess, do you mean the observation is getting warmer because we you know, have to rely on just all of this confluence of evidence. Uh, and so there's, this is all, you know, being uh, assembled by competing groups around the world and uh, people want to come out with the best, most accurate data sets. And that's, I kind of like that, you know, as competition, it'd be very difficult. Any type of conspiracy really doesn't hold water in, in this case, because you have groups in all sorts of different countries with different interests um, coming together and, you know, scientists are rivalrous too. You know, scientists love at academic conferences to say, oh, I don't, you know, did you check this? Did you check this? Like, I don't believe your numbers on this. And that's kind of the world that we're, that we're living in. And so when you have everything pointed in the same direction, um, you're pretty sure that there's, there's no uh, conspiracy, Chinese or otherwise. Got it. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, moving on. Uh are human are humans causing this current change, and how is this change different from previous massive climate changes uh, on Earth? Because I, a lot of people say, oh, climate change is always happening. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a really good question. So it's certainly the case that uh, the Earth has experienced a lot of climate changes in the past, and uh, kind of you know you can kind of think of the climate as always changing at some rate or another. Uh, one thing that we have learned from looking at these previous climate changes is that the Earth, the Earth's average temperature, this is basically a first law of thermodynamics problem where it just matters about what is the energy coming in and what is the en energy leaving. And that's how you get a change in temperature. If you have a surplus of energy, then you're going to increase the temperature. Um, and if you have a deficit of energy, you're going to decrease the temperature. And so if you think about the Earth, you know, just floating around in space, there's only a few ways to change energy coming in or, or leaving. Um, and so you can basically you can turn up energy coming in, which would be you can turn up the sun uh, or you can change. So turn up or turn down the sun or you can change uh, how much energy is leaving the Earth, which would basically come about from only two mechanisms. You can increase how much sunlight is reflected away or decrease how much sunlight is reflected away. Uh, or you can change what we call the greenhouse effect, which is how easy it is for the Earth to emit radiation back to space. So basically all climate changes um, can only come about from those three mechanisms. Either the output from the sun changes or the Earth gets more or less reflective um, of solar radiation or the Earth's greenhouse effect changes. And so when we can narrow it down to those three, that makes it a lot easier to attribute 
various changes to one cause uh, or another. And so for the current climate change, we basically know that the sun is not getting brighter or dimmer, so we can eliminate that. And we have satellites looking at the sun and measuring the radiation, so we can eliminate that one. Um, and then the other th mechanisms that really go through the albedo um, channel, so that's how much energy is reflected to space, those, those would be mostly volcanic eruptions. And we know that volcanic eruptions are not going in a direction that would cause the warming either. And so then that basically leaves um, the, a change in the greenhouse effect. And so we've known since uh, the late 1800s that gases like CO2 and methane and nitrous oxide uh, are selectively, they selectively let in the radiation from the sun and they selectively uh, are opaque to radiation from the earth. And so it's like putting on a jacket. They don't allow radiation to escape to space. And we know that we've been increasing the concentrations of these gases in the atmosphere. And we can even measure from satellites that um, right at the, at the wavelengths that uh, these gases absorb, that we can, uh, that we can tell what wavelengths they absorb from looking at experiments um, just right here on earth. And if you look up in a satellite, we can see those wavelengths not going back to space as much as as much as they were previously. So we can measure the greenhouse effect directly um, from space as we're increasing these greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere. And so, basically, you know, we know. Okay, so we. I'll just I'll just go through the steps. It's like we have the fundamental physics that tells us that increasing greenhouse gases should cause the temperature to warm. Um, we know that humans have been increasing those greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We observe a temperature increase, which is exactly in line with what we would expect given those increases in greenhouse gases. Um, we also, there's other evidence like the earth is warming very uniformly, very globally. Like I mentioned, global warming. That's exactly what you'd expect from warming caused from a well-mixed greenhouse gas like CO2. Um, you know, if it was some other natural a uh, strange mechanism. You might expect a lot of warming in one location and cooling in another location or, or something like that, where the spatial uniformity of the warming really points to uh, well-mixed greenhouse gases. Um, we're measuring the greenhouse effect enhancement from space. And basically, there's just no satisfactory natural explanation. So when we look back at, at previous um, climate changes, like a lot of them, for example, the ice ages, are uh, due to changes in Earth's orbital parameters, so like the tilt of the Earth. Um, but those are changing much slower than what we're talking about, like over a century timescale or two century timescales. Those are more like 40,000 year timescales. And so we know those aren't changing at the, at the pace that could cause uh, the change that we're seeing. So basically that eliminates all of the previous um, causes of climate change as well is that they're mostly just too slow and so that leaves basically one one explanation is the obvious explanation is that um, humans are increasing greenhouse gas concentrations and the temperature is going up in line with that uh, from the first law of thermodynamics that that's I, i'm really glad you mentioned the whole uh the measuring directly the the spectrum right of uh uh the, mm -hmm. the radio uh the radio spectrum uh is it's it's coming off of Earth, right? Is what we're measuring, right? Um, yeah, from satellites, yeah. and how you can measure that it's it's carbon dioxide that's that's uh, 
blocking light, right? That, mm-hmm. And I, I love that because it's it's a direct measurement. You can go out today and measure it. Uh, and then I saw an article that was mentioning that. Uh, I can't remember uh, where I saw it. And I also saw that uh, mention how we are also able to uh, take the amount of carbon-14 in um, in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and you can measure that, yes, uh, humans are the ones that uh, cause that by re- by using fossil fuels because it matches fossil fuel uh, yeah, carbon. Exactly, yeah, that fossil fuels have a different uh, sig- isotopic signature, and so yep. we yep. know that it's coming from fossil fuels and not from some... You know, I mean, for, for one thing, we know that we're digging up fossil fuels and burning them and putting in, putting them in the atmosphere. So it would be a huge surprise if somehow, like, it, you know, we're measuring something where it's, it seems like it's coming from some other origin, right? Yeah, just, um, the, just the quantity of burning. Like if you wore goggles and you could see all the carbon dioxide off-gassing <laughs> from all this stuff, you'd be like, holy crap, we are definitely changing some some stuff here. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Like just, you know, human perception of, of various things. If we could see carbon dioxide. Now, one of the reasons it's a greenhouse gas is that we can't see it. So it's, you know, it's invisible mm-hmm. to sunlight, lets it in. Um, but if we could see it, that would be very, that would probably be a, leave a very different impression. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, what do you have to say about like, you know, the past mass extinctions on Earth, you know, in the fossil record, we actually know that uh, quite a few of them were uh, directly because of uh, large large changes in the carbon cycle. Is, is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, um, a lot of the previous five mass extinctions have a lot more to do with uh, changes in chemistry than necessarily changes in temperature. But of course, you know, you get extinctions when the environment changes uh, very rapidly because uh, organisms are adapted to a certain environment and then it changes and then they're not able to adapt fast enough. And uh, so it's not, you know, it's not all that complicated in that sense. And we're definitely, oh, sorry, DJ. I was going to say we're definitely uh, changing it at a rate that the world, I mean, that the planet has never experienced before, right? Yeah, apart from perhaps uh, asteroid impacts or comet impacts, we think that this rate of warming, especially if it were to persist at this rate, um, you know, we're we're setting a new global temperature record, um, or at least, you know, over the past few hundred years, we're setting a new record every few years. And that rate of change is probably like 10 times faster than the rate, uh, for example, coming out of the last ice age. So yeah, it's it's uh, very difficult to adapt to for you know natural systems as well as human systems. Cool. So that actually uh, kind of brings us to our our, our next question. Um, so, uh, is climate change dangerous to humanity and other organisms if we don't do anything? It's certainly dangerous if we don't do anything. Um, so there's enough you know fossil fuels uh, in the ground to completely melt Greenland and Antarctica um, or the ice sheets on top of them. And so those that represents like 60 meters of sea level rise. So, you know, 200 feet of sea level rise. So you're really talking about reshaping um, the coastlines in that type of situation. Now, it takes a really long time. It takes much longer Mm -hmm. 
than people maybe think, especially if they watch kind of climate documentaries, because that gets left out. Um, you know, those those ice sheets took millions, tens of millions of years to build up. And so you don't melt them in decades or even centuries. So we're talking more like a thousand years, 2000 years uh, to completely melt them anyway. Um, so it's not something that just that just happens overnight, but it's something I mean, 2000 years, you know, there were humans around 2000 years ago. So it's not like that's some totally, uh, you know, some time scale that we totally can't can't comprehend. Um, and then also, you know, there's enough fossil fuels to uh, to raise the temperature enough so that like a lot of the land surface is basically uninhabitable to mammals or to humans. Um, uh, if you look at the way that they quantify this is with wet bulb temperature, which is just a measure of um, temperature that kind of takes into account how well um, organisms are able to kind of cool themselves down uh, just through sweat and evaporation. And when you do that calculation, you see that a lot of the tropics becomes uninhabitable for uh, for mammals and humans if we were to really you know, double down and find all the coal and burn it and, uh, and decide to, to go that route. Um, so if we do nothing, then certainly it's, um, you know, we have the potential for a huge catastrophe and for all, all the worst type of things that you hear in terms of existential threat and everything like that. That is a ways away. Um, you know, so when, when we're looking at impacts right now, uh, I would say that, you know, we can see very clear signals in in heat waves increasing. We can see clear signals in cold spells decreasing, so not increasing, as, as you might hear. Mm-hmm. Um, we see some signals in extreme precipitation. Uh, so as it gets warmer, the atmosphere can hold more water vapor. Seven uh, percent per degree uh, Celsius increase, and so there's more water available to cause kind of extreme uh, precipitation events or flooding events. Um, there's there's kind of mixed signals on wildfires, kind of mixed signals on tropical cyclones so far. Uh, you know, th- there was a study recently on Hurricane Katrina, which gets brought up a lot in the context of climate change, um, and they found that. Uh, that the warming that had occurred by the time Katrina formed did not uh, change the wind speed at all of Hurricane Katrina, but it made it uh, essentially rain 8% more than it would have otherwise. So that's kind of the level that we're talking about uh, so far with one degree uh, Celsius warming. Um, And then, yeah, so then there's, there's concerns about agriculture, uh, for example, that there's, um, the more days that corn and and wheat and soybeans spend over 30 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, the you have kind of large drops in yield beyond that, and so people will do projections and and find that we get um, you know if without adaptation, you get large decreases in yield. Now historically, that has not been the case because technology has way overwhelmed that. Uh, temperature effect. So changes in irrigation and fertilization and or fertilizer and, and things like that uh, have outweighed any detrimental climate impact. So I would say right now, as far as humans are concerned, um, a lot of the negative impacts are kind of hidden in the noise. Um, they're not necessarily as large as, as you might suspect if you're 
consuming a certain brand of of uh, climate media. Um, but that doesn't mean that they, you know, that they can't get quite bad because we're talking about, you know, extreme mitigation measures uh, would be to meet the Paris two degree goal. And that's already twice as much warming as we've seen. Right. So that would be like a very extreme mitigation scenario is we only get twice as much warming and it'd be much more likely to see three times as much warming. And, you know, it's possible to see four times as much warming by 2100. And then it's, this, you know, the world doesn't end in 2100. There's more time after that. So um, just because right now I would say a lot of the impacts are kind of in the noise, uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that doesn't discount all the other things I said previously about that there is the huge um, potential for catastrophe in the long term. Cool. Um, well, not cool. That's uh, <laughs> kind of harrowing. Uh, oh, crap. If we don't get our act together, I mean, things could get bad. It's like, you know, a car without airbags. Uh, would you kind of, what do you think about that uh, way of saying it? Yeah, I like, I like that. I like, um, you know, I think there's too much expectation on scientists that that we should be able to know exactly what the impacts will be at what time. And and when we can't do that, there's kind of this attitude of, well, come back when you like know all that stuff. And, you know, I, I do like these these analogies that are that are more like, you know, that invoke risk. Because that, that's really what we're talking about here is that we don't know the future, especially when everything is changing. You know, the climate is changing, but also society is changing and technology is changing and you have populations changing and, and all this stuff. So we can't have these quantitative predictions of, oh, this many people are going to die in this year or something like that. Um, but you can think of it like risk and like, you know, why you would, um, you know, would you drive without an airbag or would you... Um, you know, choose not to get fire insurance or analogies like this, I think are, are helpful, helpful ways to think about it. Cool. So, uh, can we fix the problem of climate change and how dire is the situation? Well, you know, like I was just saying with the impacts, the way they are now, I wouldn't say that it's dire now. And so if, we were in some situation where we, where we were already close to solving the problem as in transitioning away from fossil fuels for our energy towards something else, then it, I would basically say, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, the problem is what makes it dire is that we're so nowhere near close to solving the problem. And we have, you know, a lot of headwinds um, facing us. Uh, one of those is population increases. Uh, so we're at, you know, six, seven billion people right now, but expected to plateau at around 11 billion. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of additional people, you know, consuming more energy. And then we're expecting, you know, the developing world to uh, live much more like the developed world. So, you know, uh, one projection is there's a billion cars on Earth today, and it's going to be closer to 3 billion uh, by 2050. Uh, so tripling the the level of cars on the planet, if those are all internal combustion engine cars, that's this huge headwind. And all of that additional CO2, you know, just accumulates in the atmosphere and causes warming downstream. Uh, so th those types of things, it's not just cars, it would be 
electrifying the developing world. Uh, so, in, you know, it was China over the past decade. It will continue to be China uh, consuming more energy. But then India and then Africa uh, after that, you're just going to have this huge increase in energy consumption. Um, and so if that increase in energy consumption is uh, with fossil fuels, then that's what makes the situation uh, super dire, because then then you're talking about kind of just baking in uh, all of this additional warming that then is, you know, irreversible on the timescales that, that we care about. So that that actually kind of brings up a interesting subject is a lot of people I see on the uh, environmentalist left really uh, seem to think, okay, if we all just kind of hunker down and use less energy, we're, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to solve this with that. And I, I have always been very skeptical of that, especially if you want developing countries uh, to uh, develop. And because uh, that's one thing they need if they want to uh, have prosperity and, and, uh, and stop increasing in population and, and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I don't see how I don't see how someone can appeal to the idea that you want to make the worth the world habitable for your grandkids, but you don't want uh, you know the people in Africa to be brought out of poverty, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so th- that is that is such a key part of this is that um, we want the rest of humanity, the many billions of people who don't have electricity, to have electricity and to have uh, a standard of living like we have, um, and so. I don't think that's an option <laughs> is to say, oh, we'll just we'll just disallow that so that the earth doesn't get warmer. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a that's a troubling um, kind of ideology on the environmental left, the kind of anti-human uh, side of things that right. would that would be, you know, again, that would be like for population control or for, you know, forced uh, mm-hmm. degrowth or, you know, no, no economic growth. Yeah. yeah, like austerity. So, um, just so, so if we want to get this d- figured out, what needs to happen and when? Like, how how can we fix this? Yeah. So I think I mean I think the right way to look at it is uh, using the Kaya identity, which is a little bit uh, academic, but if you'll humor humor me, there's like there's these four terms. Two of them I was just talking about. Um, so you multiply these things together and you get how much CO2 emissions um, we have. So there's global population, how many people are on the planet. There's goods and services consumed per person. So that would be like the how wealthy we are part. That's the second term. The third term is the energy required to produce a given amount of goods and services. So we call that the energy intensity of GDP. So that would be like efficiency. So if you were to change light bulbs from incandescent to LED light bulbs or something, you're getting the same service for much less uh, energy. Uh, And then the last term, this is what I would emphasize, is the CO2 emissions for a given amount of energy. So we don't want, I mean, we could hypothetically reduce CO2 emissions to zero by eliminating any of those. So if you eliminate human population, then you're going to eliminate CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. If you eliminate all the wealth, GDP per capita, you can eliminate uh, emissions, uh, CO2 emissions. Those two things we want to keep, or 
we're going to allow population to keep going up and we want GDP to, to keep going up. The energy intensity of GDP, that is already coming down. So we use less energy. We're getting more efficient at producing uh, goods and services. So that's good. That's coming down. That can come down faster um, by kind of imposing various efficiency measures. Um, you know, yeah, there'd be a number of different policies that could do that. But really the key thing is CO2 emissions for a given amount of energy. So that's changing the energy system from one that uses fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas to things that don't emit CO2. So nuclear is obviously one of those hydroelectric, wind, solar, geothermal. Um, those those would be the, the main the main ones or uh, fossil fuels where you're using carbon capture and storage and you're not allowing, you're not dumping the CO2 into the atmosphere. So basically separating uh, carbon dioxide from our industrial base. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I- and, the, and the challenge is really, you know, is really obvious when you think about that CO2 just accumulates in the atmosphere. So emissions need to come down to zero in order for CO2 to, to stabilize and for, for temperature to stabilize. So it might sound good if you say, oh, emissions are coming down and they are coming down in the United States. And they're, they peaked in, in California in 2004 and they peaked in the United States in 2007 and they're coming down, but that's still, the faucet is still on. You're just tightening it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the water in the bathtub is still rising. And so the, the challenge is you have to get down to basically zero emissions. Yeah. I think a big a big part of the correct me if I'm wrong the reduction in uh, CO2 emissions the uh, carbon intensity of our energy uh, a lot of it has to do with our switch to natural gas um, a big part of it at least natural gas <clears throat> like what sixty percent or something like that yeah my understanding is it was like half the switch to natural gas and half wind okay. and solar expansion yeah so there has been a big there has been a big wind and solar expansion um, and that becomes more um practical as storage uh gets cheaper so storage has also come down i mean both wind and solar have come down in price uh dramatically and storage has come down in price dramatically over the past uh, 10 years uh and so that's that's why you see most plans um really emphasize wind solar and storage uh th- those are you know relatively intensive um in terms of materials and uh, wind and solar take up a lot of land, so it's hardly like there there are no drawbacks to that. But that mm-hmm. seems seems like that's um, is the mainstream type of plan that you see. Uh, and then I would yeah. I would be on on your side that nuclear should also be a part of that as well. Okay, well, we'll get that. Uh, we'll get to the uh, idea of using nuclear yeah. a, a little bit later, but uh, we should yeah. probably move on. So. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, bring up the next question here. Um, so many people tend to uh, take the issue with, quote, climate alarmists. Um, would you consider yourself one? And is such alarmism counterproductive or misguided? I don't know. Do you think what, I, what I'm what i saying sounds alarmist? I mean, I think it just Not totally depends. <laughs> depends. I think you answered your... that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It depends on your baseline, though. You know, if 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 you think that 
climate change is a Chinese hoax, then you might be alarmed by learning <laughs> what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, um, you know, I encounter a lot of people on Twitter and they'll direct message me a decent amount that are under the impression that like humanity is going to go extinct within their lifetimes. And so right. in, in that case, then no, I'm the opposite of an, of an alarmist. Um, I don't see any evidence for something like that uh, at all. And so I do think that there is there is a problem with that type of alarmism, that they're learning that from somewhere. And I think that they can, that eventually they'll become just disenchanted with science or with knowledge in general when that doesn't uh, come to pass. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. things like, I remember last year with the, the Amazon um, fires, that that was a big social media thing that, oh, the Amazon is on fire and it's the lungs of the earth and like we're going <laughs> to suffocate or something like that. And then when you look at it, it's like, oh, well, actually, this isn't even a, you know, a historically unprecedented fire season. One, two, it's mostly slash and burn like it's not wildfires. It's just it's deforestation, which is also a problem, but it's that's a different thing than climate. Um, and, you know, three, the, our oxygen supply is in no way in jeopardy from this, these types of fires. And so stuff like that, when that gets out there and it gets into people's heads as if scientists said that, and then, oh, they never hear about it again. I think that really undermines, you know, trust in science and in, in news coverage of science and things like that. And so I would be very much against that type of alarmism because it's just it's wrong and counterproductive right and i'm and i'm worried i think when people say oh you're just being an alarmist it's just like at what point am i not being an alarmist when you're just stating the the damn problem and there it 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 starts it gives cover i think to some you know people that reject the idea that climate change is even happening um what what when when do we I, I I guess this is all up to interpretation, but when does the alarm need to be like, hey guys, we need to do something serious? It's like a there's an asteroid coming towards Earth, we need to deflect it. Like when when do we when do we panic? Yeah, I mean, I wish that we could all just dispassionately act rationally and make decisions based on the best you know interests of everything that that we're weighing. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, how I treat my classes and things is I, I don't really feel like as a climate scientist, it's my job to motivate action or to inspire action. I think it's my job to inform and then mm-hmm. it's up to other people to to kind of do the, the motivational side. It's like if, if I if I heard from epidemiologists about the, the current pandemic, I don't want them to you know, like if they think everyone should wear a mask, I don't want them to tell me you have to wear a mask or you'll vaporize and die in two minutes or something, you know, like I actually Mm -hmm. want them to just tell me what the facts are, like why you've come to this conclusion. Um, And so I try to do that. I try to respect other people and their judgment of of what's the best um, thing to do. But historically, it's true that hasn't worked. I mean, (laughs) emissions have only gone up and up and up. And so, you know, other people have said, okay, well, I'm going to exaggerate on X, Y, Z, either subconsciously or consciously. Uh, I don't think that that is the job of a scientist uh, to do, but maybe, you know, communicators and, and, 
and activists uh, feel like uh, feel more justified doing that. That's our job. Our, our job. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So it's interesting you you bring up. Uh, sorry if I'm sidetracking here a little bit. The the you you kind of paralleled with the the pandemic and uh, what the science uh, or what epidemiologists are saying or what they're saying about masks and stuff. And I think uh, the message. Uh, there, there has been extremes on the messages, and I think it's it's caused some people to tune out uh, to the news on on some of those messages. You, even with such a thing that you'd think would be really apparent, like uh, a, a pandemic where people are actively dying right now, um, people have already uh, tuned out extremes and t- tuned out the the news. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel the same way. It's like you hear one thing one day and one thing. Another day, I mean, one of it, one of the reasons I think is that information is so decentralized and we're getting it kind of from social media and mm-hmm. uh, so people are kind of living on different planets. And uh, I definitely see that as a problem for climate change as well. You have written an article in Quillette magazine entitled Empiricism and Dogma, Why Left and Right Can't Agree on Climate Change. Could you briefly explain your take and what would you say is the biggest political hurdle to produce effective mitigation strategies. Yeah, I guess the point of that article was just that um, the kind of the narratives and themes and ideologies uh, that that go along with the solutions to climate change really align well with um, with those that are already embedded in the kind of minds of people on the left. And so my only point there was just that it's not so much the dichotomy is that people on the left are um you know driven by pure reason and logic and people on the right are are dogmatists it's more that just the solutions to climate change are kind of inevitably uh, collectivist and and have to do with kind of world government um and these things just kind of align better with the politics of of those on the left and so i think you know that's why we've seen the Democratic Party in the United States be much more on board with climate policy um, than the Republican Party, and we've seen with things like the Green New Deal that um, the Democratic Party finds this to be an issue that works very well with pre-existing kind of ideas as to how society should run. Um, and so I do I don't necessarily have a you know quote unquote, Republican solution, as long as, you know, I guess these parties are always evolving, but like the way I'm thinking of it right now is kind of Republican being more like libertarian and anti, anti-government. Um, and this really is kind of a, a government problem. It really is, you know, this the type of thing that government was made for, where individuals acting in their own self-interest don't get you to the ultimate optimum solution. So I don't know if there's a way to fix that. I think kind of the whole window has moved so that now, you know, there's there's a there's a loud enough voice on the far left that's kind of calling for a socialist revolution to solve this, that now there's kind of room for people on the right to be like, okay, we're not going to do that. Um, So how about we have a carbon tax or we have this program that... um, uh, you know, that encourages uh, wind and solar and nuclear or, or whatever. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that conversation evolves. I mean, historically, the Republican Party of the United States has 
basically done nothing, but I think now um, they'll they'll be forced to come to the table with solutions. Definitely. The uh, let's let's not tell the the last guest on our our podcast what what you said there. <laughs> we had the we had the libertarian uh, 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 presidential candidate actually on. So it was... yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say it's great. You know, if 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 we can just say innovate away and the cheapest solution works, and that and there's something that beats fossil fuels, that's amazing. That's great. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the ideal situation. The problem is fossil fuels are really good at what they do. Um, and the they have this negative externality. They have this long-term uh, negative side effect that just accumulates in the atmosphere and it's delayed in time and it you know hurts people decades and centuries into the future. And so that's, again, that's the, that's the whole point of doing basic scientific research. We wouldn't have known about this if we hadn't invested in science. And it's the type of problem that government is, basically exists to solve. Um, and it, so long as fossil fuels are the cheapest, you know, quote unquote cheapest without pricing in the negative externality of having to clean up the mess in the future, exactly. then yeah. you need, you need to you know, do something like put a price on carbon to correct that market failure. And that's something that a libertarian should be on board with. It's, yeah. it's correcting a market failure. And I, yeah. and I tried to bring up the carbon fee and dividend, which is kind of the, 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 the big thing with economists on how to correct the, the market failure and the tragedy of the commons issue of uh, this carbon dioxide pollution. Cause you know, p- polluting is, you know, it's it's violating other people, and you just can't do that. And the, it's the government's job to make sure you don't pollute. You know, yeah, yeah. and that's totally mainstream. You know, neoliberal economics too. You know, that's in Thomas Sowell's basic economics book. He talks about that, and it's in you know Greg Mankiw has like the main you know economics one hundred and one textbook. It's just you know right there. This is what you do with pollution, and CO two is a pollutant. And so I think that that should be something that, especially when the other side is saying we need, you know, in like government takeover of all industries and uh, everything, <laughs> that something like that, like a carbon price, would be more palatable. Yeah, yeah, Go and I, I definitely, uh, as as a a person that that does nuclear power, I f- I find it a big problem of that, like you mentioned the negative externality of, um, okay. So nuclear, they, they are required to, uh, to control a hundred percent of their waste, right. And or nearly a hundred percent of their, their waste and, and, and contain it and keep it from, from the atmosphere, bios, biosphere. And then all these other industries just get a toss it up into the, into the air, you know, and, right, exactly, uh, yeah. and yeah, uh, I think that negative externality really does need to be uh, uh, taken into account to um, in a tax, a carbon tax, or something. So, let me let me get to our our next question. Um, what things do the left and right do wrong when it comes to climate change? And you did talk about that a little bit, but for sure, yeah, I would just say you know, kind of reiterate that I think the right historically has just denied it, and that's not a sustainable position uh, going forward. And, um, yeah, the far left, at least, you know, <laughs> what I see on some extreme voices on Twitter is definitely doing 
things wrong in in my opinion of going too far down the kind of anti-humanist anti um right, right society route essentially that we need to completely um throw out all of society uh because of climate change and i think that's uh unhelpful uh politically and it's also not something that i would advocate for well, yeah, no, it also drives I, division yeah yeah no, i mean i would say yeah, you know, I've noticed on the left, I'd say the biggest problem with the left is they just aren't looking at the pragmatic solutions. They they they're against gas, which gas for it's still it's carbon dioxide, but at least it's 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 less as much than coal and they're, you know, the traditional like leftist kind of hippie folks, you know, were got scared of nuclear power during the uh during the Cold War era and the, the few accidents scared people which was understandable but we basically gave up on that technology and there's like i think that there's like this cult out there that says we need to only do the type of solutions that nature would have intended like wind and solar and hydro like we we need to just use the natural forces and that's that's not how that's just not how society is going to flourish we we used to live that way we used to live (laughs) that way exactly um so wondering what you think about that yeah i mean i think that's interesting because it does seem it does seem like um you know the wind getting energy from the wind and sun kind of makes you feel good uh from a like pantheistic perspective but on the other side it it is true that they uh you know take up a lot of land there's a lot of environmental issues with with those as well and when you're adding in um the need for storage, you know, you need to mine a lot of uh, minerals for that. So, you know, I would, I would definitely say, I mean, everyone, all the plans I see are very gung ho on, on wind and solar. Uh, and I think that that's doable with, you know, the, to a given level of penetration. So not a hundred percent wind and solar due to their intermittency, uh, but to some reasonable you know, penetration level, they seem to, they seem to be good. Uh, but then, yeah, you do need that baseload power as well. Uh, unless you, unless there's some pretty big advances is, with storage, whether that's pumped hydro or, or whatever. Um, and so that would be, that would be gas with carbon capture and storage or nuclear. Yeah. We just, we the left and I think they're slowly getting, to understand it because younger kids are more okay with it that you know leaving nuclear off the table is really dumb uh but and do but you we'll think that is a, a relic of the cold war uh it's it's a mixture of things it's just uh you know i, I mean i mean again we have a more nuclear-based question up ahead but uh it, you know people scared of of the cold war they associated nuclear power with nuclear bombs they saw some accidents people kind of there was a lot of like mythology on like how bad radiation can get, you know, uh, like, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, oh, and just a, you know, an anti-human Malthusian type of, uh, ecology where, you know, people were a lot of environmentalists and there's like Sierra club, David Brower, uh, said something like, you know, unlimited energy for humanity would be like the end of nature because we would just go bananas and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, which hasn't, hasn't really happened. So uh, DJ, you want to say anything about that? Oh yeah. Like 
it's interesting you bring up Sierra Club because they used to be, well, we, we are really getting into the next question here now, aren't we? <laughs> they we really used to be into uh, nuclear power um, starting out. I don't know if you, you knew that, Patrick, but then uh, you might know better than me, uh, Phil. Uh, they eventually switched because of, they, they thought it would be an issue when it comes to population in, in California it would bring more people and yeah. ruin the Californian landscape. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, something that, you know, has really proven that line of thinking wrong is the idea that, you know, when, when people become more affluent, they don't have more kids, right? So if that would, that would totally throw all of this out the window. I mean, we're super lucky that that's, that that's the case, right? That as we, (laughs) as we become more affluent, we're basically at replacement level or less, and it's the poor um, developing countries that uh, that have that's where all of the increase in population is centered. Um, but that's you know that's great that that we kind of lucked into into that situation because otherwise it would be the case we can't just expand population uh, forever. Yeah, right. I think that's kind of a, an outdated view too that I I hope is is starting to that view is becoming less popular because I, I do find it with people who are more traditional uh, environmental, uh, like hippie type uh, people. Uh, yeah. um, it's, it's interesting. I've actually heard in some Marxist circles, you know, going all the way to the other direction of markets, uh, free markets um, uh, that they call it eco-fascism when people are just like, Oh, you need to have less kids. So I think there's going to, there is that type of thinking is, is kind of seen as foul. And I think that that's a good thing. But uh, I think we should uh, move to the move to the next question sure. just for time. So, so now we're going to get to you know the nuclear power part of this because we are a nuclear power organization. Uh, but what are your views on nuclear power as a major solutions to the emissions problem? Do you think that that solution would be the most bipartisan? I am not sure about bipartisanship, but I definitely think that it, you know, deserves to be uh, in the mix just with everything else. Um, I'm kind of an all of the above uh, type of person when it comes to um, the energy technologies that would replace fossil fuels. I mean, that's actually why I particularly like the, um, you know, pricing the negative externality of, of carbon dioxide emissions is that it lets whatever the cheapest, you know, most efficient solution uh, win out. Um, and so I would be all for, uh, nuclear if that's, if that's what wins out. I mean, we've seen, um, countries scale that up very quickly. We've seen France do that in a matter of what, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and so it's something that we know can be done. Um, that's not something we've seen, uh, done with wind and solar yet. Um, you know, the wind and solar advocates would say that we can deploy at that level, um, but yeah, I would say I would say let it uh, let the technologies compete and uh, see who wins. I mean, I know in your um, your mission statement, you talk about nuclear being safe, uh, safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. Um, so it, it gets challenged on safe safety and cheapness the most. I think um, I think safety. Empirically, historically, it's very safe. Uh, you know, I, I know the stats about it being, you know, killing far less people than basically every other technology, especially coal, because of all of the 
um, you know, lung issues with, with coal, but even, you know, people falling off roofs of, you know, installing solar panels, it's, it's less than that. Um, but mm-hmm. I would just, I would be interested in, in what you, you know, would say about, you know, the, uh, proliferation issue and, you know, just because there hasn't maybe been a meltdown that caused a huge number of deaths, does that mean that there won't be one in the future? Um, so I would, I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah. Sorry, I, yep. Oh, sorry. sorry. I'll, I'll let you talk about the meltdown part, but I was going to say about the cost. It just depends where you are. Like right now, the cost to build in the United States and parts of Europe have just ballooned out of control. But uh, you look at South Korea and China and Russia, and I think, I don't know how the price range of India, oh, Ontario, uh, they've brought nuclear, you know, way scaled it way up. And once they got it built, they have some of the most affordable energy prices in, in you know, in the, in the world, uh, you know, it's, well, not in the world, but like similar to that of coal or gas. So, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, it's the upfront cost that, that people would say like, Oh, that's why we shouldn't do it. But the, the innovators can bring that cost down, but go ahead. What were you going to say, DJ? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned, uh, so nuclear safety, um, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, that is, there, there's so many misconceptions. Um, if you would say some, someone had a meltdown, you would think it's the end of the world type, type of thing, but that's, that's not true at all. Um, actually, if you think about a uh, worst case scenario for a, um, Western style reactor, um, so I'm, I'm discounting Chernobyl here. They were a interesting, uh, they are not a Western-style reactor, and uh, that type of reactor, um, as it was built in that day, doesn't even exist anymore. The, even the ones that are running today are are um, have been completely modified and changed. Uh, but think of the worst-case scenario, which is Fukushima. Uh, it's a triple meltdown, and um, even with that uh, triple meltdown, with a large amount of nuclides uh, released, um, there will be no um uh discernible effects so you can't even measure the effects when it comes to the radiation um dose received by the the um by people um or mm. even the environment too so it's it's interesting we treat it as being such a uh <sighs> terrible thing but a lot of it really has to do with that misconception of uh, radiation and what it what it does uh, to people, and I really hope to actually, um, in my career as a as a health physicist, really uh, make that a a point of my career to communicate to people about the actual risks uh, when it comes to uh, radiation. But they are way lower than what people uh, seem to think. Even in a worst case scenario, um, you you could move people back right now to the exclusion zone. And you likely would not see any. Um, health effects to the people um were yeah. they storing waste on site there yep and uh that waste uh moved from from what i've heard um four inches from, from where it was sitting because of okay. the uh, tsunami and was not a uh, was not impacted oh yeah the, um, the, the fear-mongering of the waste is oh my gosh if, if you actually learn like i tell people if you learn about the waste and how it, little of it there is and how like easily managed it is i'm like you know you'll almost realize you were lied to about it you know uh it, yeah so what i hear thing. mostly is just the time scale that uh concerns people yeah is 
Do you think that's right? It's just that it's not as dangerous as. Um, DJ might know more about this, but uh, a lot of the fresh out of the reactor uh, uh, fission products decay uh, to background, like within a few hundred years. The the thousand year timeline is for like plutonium and uranium, but we can we can actually use that again in new reactors. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then to add to the you you're mentioning the uh, um, the waste part, I, I should mention that there there was also the uh, fuel fuel. I can't think spent fuel pool um, mm-hmm. that they, they were concerned about. Um, people thought, oh, shoot, this reactor over here just uh, had a, a hydrogen explosion. Like, but there was no fuel in the in the reactor. Shoot, maybe these the spent fuel pool um, ran out of water. And uh, that's where the hydrogen came from and, and caused the explosion. But then it, it, it turned out that that actually was not true once once everything finally settled down and they finally looked at it they go it is warmer um the the level has fallen a little bit uh but it was just fine actually but i hope that answered your question (laughs) yeah yeah i mean those are the things right like it's uh storage um it's expense um and so i think you know, sometimes it gets said that it's not actually renewable. Is that so? Is that just the case with uranium two thirty five, but not with other uh, fuels? Or well, the idea of renewable, I think, is kind of a a, a, fall- <laughs> a, a fallacy to begin with. But they say, oh, it's not u- renewable because it require requires a fuel source. But we are never going to run out of uranium the same way mm-hmm. we'll never run out of fossil fuels. And in fact, we have enough. Uh, potential isotopes that we can, you know, breed in reactors to fuel humanity for like a what, like million years even. Basically until the sun goes out. The sun goes um, out. <laughs> and uranium-235, sure. Like, so if you're using just uranium-235, um, that, that is the more rare of them. Um, but we still have a lot of that, actually. Um, people like to focus on the, uh, uh, what's it called... Phil was kind of alluding this to this too, but the, the known resources that we have, mm-hmm. uh, but those known resources are only, they've, they've been this, we, we basically said we've had this many years of, uh, of uranium 235 left over. And then that was like years ago, like decades ago. And we still have that same amount. Like, because right. it's like the proven reserves of oil keep going up. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if, and if we like a lot of our spent fuel, it has a lot of the fuel left. The, basically, the fuel rods just wear out. Um, but if you can recycle that, you, I mean, that's already we never have to mine for it again. You can get it yep. from seawater. It's 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 crazy. Essentially, it's a fuel that is not worth anything. It's basically just 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 a piece of matter you use to turn into energy, and it, it's so much of it. So, so when they say nuclear is not renewable, I would argue, and a lot of us re- uh, nuclear people argue, it is it is the most renewable because of the of you get so much bang for your buck for little like material inputs when you need a lot of solar panels and a lot of wind turbines to make that whole thing work uh yeah and and it, it has just a little less footprint on the landscape and i i guess the reason why a lot of people have come over to nuclear is they start to really like look at some look at some data okay what sources of power don't emit carbon dioxide oh nuclear is there uh what are the safety records Oh, nuclear is actually one of the safest. Uh, uh, they look at 
uh, in, in terms of like the costs once they're built. Oh, looks like nuclear is actually not that that bad once it's built. You know, you just look at various different metrics and you're just like, holy crap, maybe there's something to this. And then you just mm-hmm. kind of focus on it. And that's that's why I'm an obsessive person about it. But but I, I genuinely think the data shows that 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 nuclear holds the most promise to stop this climate thing. And I like to tell people, oh, if we did not have invent nuclear fission, we'd be in a lot of trouble, you know? So that's mm-hmm. kind of how I see it. Yeah. Well, I guess it's up to you to make it bipartisan then. <laughs> we are. And I, it's You're actually, trying. there's yeah. actually, a, you know, there's actually a lot of bipartisan bills passed about nuclear, which is, which is interesting. And uh, the, the recent democratic climate response included X generation nuclear, which is, you know, I, I wish it would be a cornerstone, but at least they mentioned it. And Start. so it's not, it's a star, you know? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, cause I think we're, we're kind of running under the assumption that uh, you need bipartisan support to get something done. Um, but that's not necessarily been the strategy where, you know, like the alternative strategy is to kind of wrap climate policy in with a bunch of other things that you think do have support on your side and then get it passed, you know, that way. Um, and so I, I wish we were, you know, much less polarized where it was always the strategy was to try to get, you know, some portion of the other side. But but I have noticed that, you know, the alternative way of doing it is to just say, no, try to win your election as much as possible. And then if you're a Democrat, then get your climate bill passed with zero Republican votes because they're not going to vote for it anyway, no matter what. Um, and so that's that unfortunate. Be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because then, then I think it's just a, a pendulum. Is then then the next administration comes in and undoes everything that was just done. Yep, yep. I think we're we're definitely seeing that kind of thing today. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. when, when it come, uh, we should probably yeah move on to the to the next question here. Yeah. So, um, what other evidence based strategies would you suggest uh, to bridge the divide and actually lower emissions quickly? And affordably. Well, yeah, just what we've been talking about. So we have to switch from coal, oil, coal, oil, and gas to to other uh, sources that don't emit uh, greenhouse gases. So nuclear, wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, um, and then you know with, that can be helped with a carbon price. And then you have to uh, you know electrify more parts of the economy if. You know, I guess with nuclear, you can do a lot of the kind of cement and steel uh, manufacturing directly mm-hmm. with with nuclear power, uh, and so that helps a lot with the decarbonizing industry. Um, but for example, like switching from oil, the idea, the mainstream idea anyway, is that you basically electrify all the cars, you have electric vehicles, and so that's going to increase the demand from electricity, and then you have the electricity system be, you know, nuclear or wind and solar and hydro. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you do have to, to get all the way to zero, um, you have to, you know, get rid of the methane emissions from agriculture, you have to get rid of the nitrous oxide emissions uh, as well. Um, That's, I feel like there's too much arguing right now about those, that last 20% of emissions. And first, like, we'll deal with that when we get there and see what technology is available when we get there. Um, And for now, we can really uh, hopefully start just decarbonizing the electricity sector first, because that seems like that's 
um, what can be done first. I mean, one thing that should be bipartisan is that we could end um, all fossil fuel subsidies, which right. is kind of easier said than done because they're hidden in a lot of different policies. Um, but that should be something that the right and the left uh, should agree on, that if fossil fuels are really better, they should be able to win just on the on their merits and not be subsidized. Uh, right. So that, that that helps with emissions right there. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned carbon pricing. I think that, that that is definitely a way to go. I mean, it seems like that's a little bit more straightforward than like cap and trade. Cap and trade kind of can ca- cause some other like kind of cheating basically um mm-hmm. but but like carbon pricing and I, 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 the conservatives that are concerned about climate change and want to do something about it they they're they rally behind it if, if anybody's heard of citizens climate lobby they uh push the idea of carbon fee and dividend it's supported by uh scientists climate scientists and and, and stuff so i think i think that would be pretty that's a pretty good solution yeah one thing that is being um, really advertised right now with wind and solar and, um, you know, kind of modernizing the electricity grid so that you have a, a larger transmission area so that you can take advantage of anti-correlations of wind and sun. One thing that's advertised with that is that it creates a lot of jobs. Um, you know, normally we don't actually want to create jobs for the same thing, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to, mm-hmm. you don't want more jobs per joule of energy because that's synonymous right. with it being more expensive exactly yeah um you know like we wouldn't say oh let's ban tractors so that we can have more jobs in right agriculture um but right now with huge unemployment that does seem like both an economic and political win because you have all these idle resources and people unemployed um and so what what is the you know, job situation with nuclear, if we were to say, try to do what France did. I mean, is that, is that a job creator or, I mean, uh, with the caveat that eventually you don't, you don't really want more jobs in the energy sector. That is a great question. And I, there is some interesting, if you talk to some of the circles when it comes to uh, like the, the pro nuclear circles, uh, if if you look at like NEI, they'll might mention like, oh, they're they're a big uh, job creator. But then if you talk to some of us, we're like, well, you don't like you like you said, you don't want to um, make more jobs per per uh, unit of ener- unit of energy. Um, I know locally it is a huge deal. Like if you go to some of these towns that have uh, nuclear plants um, near them they when the nuclear plant closes they're they're done for the 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 towns mm-hmm. the towns uh really suffer so i would say at a, at, a, at a very local level um it is a huge um economic um thing uh it's not just jobs there's other there's other huge benefits um great emergency management uh good infrastructure and and whatnot that comes with that um Right. Like, uh, I was going to say fossil fuels are pretty, uh, like once you have these machines running, you know, it doesn't really take that many people to, to operate it. And the same thing is with nuclear, but it's requires a little bit more people, but it would mm-hmm. not require the same amount of, of, you know, labor costs as like massive wind and solar, uh, operations. Cause it's, it's smaller. So it's, it's a really actually one of the better ways to, uh, keep, like it's a good 
it it's like nuclear i've heard is like from one of my one of my friends but i mean we talk about this stuff all the time it's it's a good it's one of the good jobs that are well paying and actually like enrich local uh areas and doesn't cost prices to skyrocket so i think it would be a good jobs program and especially just the, just building these things you're going to it's going to require quite a quite a you know bit of labor but once it's built it doesn't require continuous you know hard labor so it it's one of the better you know industries you could uh, elevate during a you know recession or something so and you have homer simpson as the role model homer simpson as the role model yeah jeez he's a uh, chief safety inspector anything <laughs> if anything homer simpson deserves a nobel peace prize that's right so what's interesting is um I know that uh, the jobs for nuclear, when you're building them, like so th th this would be an interesting thing. Like if they decided, right, right now, let's, hey, let's pandemic's going on. We need to create a bunch of jobs. Um, if they were to, let's say, start building a bunch of nuclear plants, uh, that would provide temporarily uh, a large amount of jobs um, because when you're building it, um, that's that's a lot of labor right there. You you increase the um, the population of the the local towns uh quite a bit um during the building uh process like phil mentioned um but then when you're running them uh they do take i want to say in the 800 to 1000 people range which is actually dramatically more than what they were uh pre 911 and pre uh what's it called uh 3 mile island mm -hmm. um when they added more jobs, especially pre nine eleven, they added a lot more. They added a lot of security jobs um, after nine eleven happened. Um, which, if you talk to some other people, some people they might tell you like too many security jobs. Uh, the, the amount of security jobs that are on uh, on site, I I want to say they there's more security personnel than than any other personnel um, on site. So. Well, we've been talking for a while now, and we're kind of reaching the end of our time. Uh, I could talk forever, uh, <laughs> but uh, I was wondering, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would just say that, you know, it really is the case that what we do right now has very um, large downstream consequences. And, you know, there's just this situation where, it, you know, it takes a while for the science to penetrate into the general mind of of the public and then it takes longer for that to go into policy and then there's these physical uh delays of you know once you build a the next coal plant which of course we're still building new coal plants uh, all over the world those are going to be in existence for 30 or 40 years potentially and and have co2 go into the atmosphere for 30 or 40 years and then that stays in the atmosphere for a long time and there's this inertia with the ice sheets that then it you know, melts the ice sheets over long periods of time. And so I would just emphasize that that's where kind of the urgency comes from, is that all of the inertia in the system, both, uh, you know, sociologically and scientifically and politically and then geophysically um, makes it so that what we're doing now has consequences for uh, thousands of years. And that's what makes the situation urgent, even though, um, you know, I believe what I said about a lot of the current negative impacts being kind of uh, exaggerated. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us. I, I really hope that we can 
uh, maybe in the future have some more conversation. I, I really enjoy uh, talking back and forth with you, uh, talking some nuclear and um, learning more about climate change. I, I've, I think, I hope that we can do this more in the future, even if we're not recording a podcast. But yeah, um, for sure. It, yeah, it's definitely been very enlightening. For sure. Yeah, in lockdown, it's always great to talk to <laughs> talk to people with similar interests. Great time to get back into podcasting, for yeah. sure. Um, I feel really inspired and hopeful about the future after this, and we are honored to have you on. And uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, I would say Twitter is probably the best place. Uh, so that's just uh, Patrick T Brown three one is my Twitter handle. That sounds good, and uh, we will. Hopefully talk later. All right. Great. That's about it for this episode of Climate Fix. Dr. Brown is chock full of good information. It is good to know what experts in the field have to say. Climate mitigation is quite a complicated subject with many societal implications, and there are big difference in opinion on what humanity should do to approach this large challenge. Absolutely. We know for certain that climate change is real man-made, and a threat to our current way of life. The way to solve it is to stop emitting greenhouse gases. How we do that is indeed the million-dollar question. Hopefully, the views shared by Patrick provide listeners with a different perspective of the issue and what to do about it that deviates a little bit from the mainstream media. Climate scientists that are not panicked by climate trends but see it as urgent do exist. And yes, Many climate scientists do see nuclear power as a major part of limiting the greenhouse effect. Politically, both sides of the aisle have major strengths and weaknesses in confronting the scientific facts and how to respond. Hopefully this episode helps bridge the political divide on an issue that affects everyone. For sure. These days it is hard to make sense of anything with such division. But if we think hard about solutions, we can solve anything if we try. It is possible to understand the science of climate change want to solve the emissions issue, and also not want to disrupt our current standard of living. More people are in the middle than we think. The future is bright. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy, all one word, dot org. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support us and our mission online at www.americansfornuclearenergy, all one word, .org. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some A&E swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees to keep our organization running. We are a group of almost 10 volunteers at the moment, and we could use some monetary support. Thanks for tuning into this episode. This is Phil Ord and DJ LeClear of A&E's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time.